This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is sponsored by BT, because BT means business. BT knows that businesses come in many shapes, sizes and guises, from the person just starting out at their kitchen table to the biggest employer, which is why no matter what line of work you're in, they've got your back to help you succeed and do what you do best. No doubt connectivity is a must in Westminster, and it certainly helped us to get this episode created and distributed to you listening right now. BT already connects more than 1 million businesses and public sector organisations, offering secure and reliable connectivity. Nearly three quarters of people running a business or side hustle feel they couldn't do so without reliable broadband and mobile connectivity. That's why having connectivity you can count on is a must for business, whether it be facilitating multiple devices being connected at once or making team calls or guest Wi-Fi access for customers. BT's connectivity helps keep you and your customers happy. Whatever your business, BT's got your back. Search BT's got your back. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hello, this is the Red Box Podcast. I'm Matt Choi. I'm still here. I've not been reshuffled out. Coming up on today's episode, we push the shuffle button on the cabinet playlist. Uh, Boris Johnson's shaking up his team. Henry Zeffman is here to see if everyone in the cabinet is going to be singing from the same hymn sheet. And will it be music to voters' ears? That's our big thing coming up in a moment. First, our columnist panel today. It's India Night from the Sunday Times and from the Daily Mail. It's John Stevens. Hi, Matt. So, John, are you are you are you come down from your reshuffle high? Ah, uh, well, maybe. Um, <laughs> I mean, it was quite exciting yesterday, um, and obviously, it was quite good to see Dominic Raab removed from his post as foreign secretary after the stories I've been writing for the last few weeks. So, um, <laughs> now, as I can't g- pretend I wasn't pleased. Given. <laughs> Given that you, you did quite a lot on Dominic Raab and the various uh, calls that he didn't take or the um, uh, the fact he didn't come home and the hotel he was staying in, um, I suppose, you know, it, for, journalistically, it, it's, it's a sort of vindication of the reporting you were doing. Yeah, I mean, definitely. And, you know, his new role as Deputy Prime Minister, which is obviously an exciting new title here. Clearly have to stand in for the Prime Minister when he goes away on holiday. So I'm sure he'd be really good at doing that job. Although the general rule seems to be if Boris Johnson's away on holiday, he is too. But uh, maybe... <laughs> exactly, that was my point. <laughs> maybe you could just pay him cues to the beach. Um, now, one of the things, and it, it, there's so much to sort of go out with this, but one thing I was quite keen to talk about is Nadine um, Doris. She becomes uh, Culture Secretary. Uh, she's got quite a history of being very critical of the licence fee, very critical of left-wing snowflakes trying to do down pantomimes uh, and all that sort of thing. <laughs> um, <it laughs> India Knight, what do you make of this? Because I have to say, I think broadly, the cabinet reshuffle does seem to make some sense. And, mm. you know, people who know what they're doing or have got a record of being quite... Uh, of, of delivering, you know, whether it's Michael Gove going to housing, Nadim Zahawi going to education, they mm. seem like people that you could at least argue have got a track record of, of delivery. Nadine Doris has a track record of tweeting things often late at night uh, ab- <laughs> about <laughs> what's on the telly uh, and expressing quite strong views. And so that feels a bit more sort of Boris Johnson version one rather than version 2.0, which is what we seem to have got elsewhere. Yes. Um, I have... Uh... 
a sneaking liking, liking is maybe too strong, but a sneaking admiration of uh, Nadine Doris, who on paper I don't agree with over um, a single thing. But I like that she seems like a human being. And I like that she is quite fearless online. And I like that she very straightforwardly says what she thinks. Um, she isn't, I don't think, an obvious uh, uh, fit at culture, let's say, um, because she seems, I mean, maybe this is a strength, I don't know. She seems sort of completely middle brow. And I think what culture and the arts really need is somebody to stick up for the kind of difficult, complicated minority interest end um, and for public intellectuals and for free speech and for all of that. And I, I, I don't think, you know, but she's an accomplice. She makes lots and lots and lots of money from her novels, for example. I mean, I want to give her the benefit of the doubt. But, yeah, it's not an obvious match. Have you uh, have you ever read any of her books? No. <laughs> but you know what? I admire. I'm in the throes of finishing my um, a, a novel myself. I admire anybody who can get down that many words on paper. You know, I can write 800 words or maybe 1,500 words and then that's it. Writing 120,000 words, hats off, whatever the words are. And they do do very well. And I gather that they're, you know, they're, they're kind of warm and they're a lovely thing to read with a cup of tea on a Sunday afternoon by the fire. So, you know, good for her. What about you, John? Have you ever read uh, any of her books? I've never read any of her books, but I've been quite enjoying reading her tweets this morning. A lot of people seem to have had a dig through to find stuff that she said in the past. I mean, that tweet that you mentioned about her complaining about how left-wing snowflakes are dumbing down panto seems to be a particular favourite. I'm not quite sure how um, such a highbrow art form could be ruined by the left-wing snowflakes. But... <laughs> yeah, so the full, the full tweet, this was... Uh... Uh, from uh, December the 27th, 2017, so right in the midst of panto season, left-wing snowflakes are killing comedy, tearing down historic statues, removing books from universities, dumbing down panto, removing Christ from Christmas and suppressing free speech. Sadly, it must be true. Uh, history does repeat itself. It will be music next. I mean, I don't know where she's been going oh, to a highbrow panto, but they're doing it all wrong. <laughs> Yeah. I don't really and understand she's... what I don't understand what she's saying about Panto. What snowflakes? What ruining how? I don't. I mean, I, I, I suppose if we do, we might be able to dig through the. Maybe it's one of those things where I don't know. They're not doing cross dressing in one Panto somewhere, or um, I don't know. But I don't understand how you could say they're dumbing down Panto. You could be like well, no, taking I mean, the, the fun the out. The bar of it, is quite low, isn't it? Having having once performed in a version of a Panto. Uh, um, the idea that you could dumb it down. I mean, that's the point, I'd have thought. I'd have thought. And also, but, but, um, John, she, she might have sort of better things to do as culture secretary than go around policing the nation's pantos. Mm. What do you think this means to the BBC? Well, I mean, she has tweeted a lot about the BBC in the past. She said that state-run television's outdated. She's complained about there aren't enough women and high enough positions at the BBC. I think there's a big difference, though, between mouthing off on Twitter about the BBC and actually doing something about it. And we know the government's made a big thing in the last couple of years about how it was going to decriminalise non-payment of the TV licence, and then in the end it actually shelved the planned it hasn't really done much to the BBC and so I think it'd be interesting to see whether despite all her tweets whether she does actually do anything different with the broadcaster. Literally in the past couple of minutes Sky News are saying that John Whittingdale's been removed as media minister 
and his returning to the back benches. I mean, he was also a big critic of of the BBC I mean, and a big advocate of privatising Channel Four. So I'm not, as ever with these things, I'm not quite sure what the tea leaves are trying to tell us there, isn't it? No, no, me neither <laughs> at all. Slightly baffling. Um, uh, I, I, I suppose also, ultimately, whether or not the BBC survives is a question for for Boris Johnson rather than um, uh, Nadine Doris. But it's just, yeah, it's what the what, what, as ever we're trying to work out what does it all mean, and the answer is quite often we don't know. Uh, so what, let's move away from uh, let's move away from politics for a bit and let's talk about Emma Raducanu. There's a fascinating piece in the in Times Two today about just how much money she might make. Uh, India, what have you what are you what have you made of her extraordinary uh, success in the past past week? Oh, I love her. I love her passionately. I love everything about her. I love that her parents are immigrants. I love how she plays tennis. I love her poise and her composure. I love everything, literally everything. I have a sort of, it's like a crush, really. Um, and I was interested to see uh, those pictures of her at the Met Gala in New York, because it seems she's been propelled or propelled herself very quickly into a very particular kind of stratosphere, which of course, means that she does have the potential to earn millions and millions and millions from endorsements um, and, you know, I don't even know the word. I was going to say quadruple, but it's not enough. You know, you, you know, blow her tennis salary out of the water. I really hope that the people representing her are very careful about that and not too greedy because I think that... Uh, you know, whether she likes it or not, she is she is now a brand. And I think any kind of dilution of her brand, any kind of, if she's seen to want to make, to endorse too many things too quickly, make too much money too quickly, I think will dilute the kind of useful, wholesome, you know, she, she doesn't want to be seen as grasping in any way. So I think she should have, like, one giant... She should endorse one thing and be paid lots of money for it and then kind of leave it at that for a bit. I mean, she is incredibly marketable and bankable. You know, there was um, an agent uh, in the last few days saying that nobody has come along since David Beckham, who was so, so uh, promising in terms of making lots and lots of money. But... Yeah, I, she's only 18. I think, you know, I hope that they step, take small steps rather than giant leaps. I was amazed, John. I was reading this story in The Times a couple of days ago about how there were rumours that she might become a brand ambassador for Tiffany, the, uh, the jewellers. And uh, it pointed out that during the final, she was wearing £4,500 pearls and diamond earrings, a white gold ring worth £3,000, a £2,000 cross pendant, uh, and a £17,000 diamond-hinged bangle. And I just thought, how can you... Because I didn't remember thinking she had, like, a necklace on. I thought that must be really annoying jingle-jangling about. Mm. Even more so if you could catch it on your bangle. And um, and it, it's like thousands <laughs> of... And also, I, 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 this, I suppose you have to be really careful, John, that the, the, uh, uh, everyone's favourite girl next door, mm. if, you, if you are jingle-jangling around like Mr T, uh, that, that become It's a slightly difficult... Um, you know, it's a slightly difficult balance to strike. That part of your appeal is you're the girl next door, but if you're wearing thousands of pounds around your neck, it's um, it's a difficult circle to square, John. Yeah, I think that is the key kind of problem on the horizon. That part of you know why she's amazing is that she's got this natural joy when she's playing tennis. She is young, she is fresh, 
And if you suddenly start seeing her with all these brands all over her and all of these adverts, then it, you do slightly worry that that can slightly ebb away. But you can see why she is so incredibly marketable when you compare her to someone like Andy Murray. In this piece in The Times today, it talks about how he didn't relish the hoopla of working with um, sponsors, which you can well imagine and she's obviously also female so she can endorse fashion cosmetics jewelry obviously we never saw andy murray with um tiffany earrings and bangles and whatever on the court so there is lots of opportunities there i think the worry is obviously she is just 18 she's clearly an amazing tennis player but there are going to be bumps in the road i do slightly worry if next year at wimbledon that she has a slightly disappointing time then it will be very difficult for her that i think we have to put into context She's just 18. She's clearly doing very well. But, you know, we're going to have to judge her on the next few years rather than just a few matches. And I know the trouble is there's nothing we love more, India, than building someone up and then knocking them down. Well, exactly. And, you know, it's too soon for any of that to start. I, I really, really hope she has a period of grace before somebody, you know, pipes up going, oh, well, actually, she's looking a bit blingy or, you know, how much did that cost? I, I, I hope that she's allowed to enjoy her triumphs and her 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 selfness, her Emma Raducaniness before anything else is projected onto her. Yeah, I think we can all agree on that. And I, I, I should have before before we, we got going, I should have commiserated with you both that neither of you have made the list for the time for the Time magazine's hundred most influential people. <laughs> oh, uh, this year. Just pipped. <laughs> just pipped by uh, publicity shy Harry and Meghan. Mm. John Stevens and India Knight there. Don't forget, you can get yourself a Times subscription. You get your first month for free right now if you go to thetimes.co.uk forward slash Times Red Box. Up next, we hit shuffle on the cabinet plate. If you thought the only way to get a more defined jawline with natural looking results was through surgery, think again. Juvederm Volux XC is a non-surgical injectable gel filler that improves moderate to severe loss of jawline definition and can help you achieve natural looking results with little downtime. Even better, this improved definition lasts up to one year with optimal treatment. No maintenance required. Improve jawline definition for a smooth sculpted look with Juvederm Volux XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 50% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition smart bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com slash awards. Only at a Sleep Number store or sleepnumber.com. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. List. You're listening to the Red Box Podcast. Now it's time to hit the wheels of steel. 
Yeah, not many songs with Boris in the title. Boris the Spider, uh, the best we could find. But what we're going to do in this half an hour is ask, what does it actually all mean? Let's get nerdy about all of this. Uh, we'll disguise the nerdiness by playing music in between. Uh, will the cabinet now be singing from the same hymn sheet? And will it be music to the ears of voters? We're joined by resident DJ and sort of chief political correspondent of the Times. Henry Zeffman, how are you? I'm buzzing, Matt. I, I mean, last night was the most unbelievable club night, I suppose, of politics, which was, you know, Boris Johnson uh, taking a third of his cabinet and moving them into new jobs. Uh, before, before we get into the individuals, who do we know is behind it? Because previously, you know, you know, Dominic Cummings, Dominic Cummings is claiming it's Carrie's reshuffle. Previously, Dominic Cummings was always credited. Or is this the first time we've really seen Boris Johnson in charge? Well, I actually think all of Boris Johnson's reshuffles, this is the third of them now, have been quite a lot more brutal than people mm. have properly appreciated. His first batch of appointments, not really a reshuffle because he was clearing out Theresa May's team. It was a real clear out. He said to a load of ministers who had backed him in 2019, sorry, your career's over. His 2020 reshuffle, he got rid of his chancellor. That is a big deal. That's something that Tony Blair never did, even though he often wanted to. And then this reshuffle, I kind of don't know why we should be surprised. You know, I think the common theme here is Boris Johnson uh, likes a big reshuffle. He doesn't do them that often, but when he does, they're big and bold. But also, this is a man in complete control of the Conservative Party. So I think we can get all comings about it, or we can get conspiratorial about other people in there. I mean, I know when he uh, moved Dominic Raab, for example, he was flanked by his relatively low-profile chief of staff, Dan Rosenfield, who I think did have a big hand in this reshuffle. But ultimately... Boris Johnson was behind this reshuffle, and this is Boris Johnson's cabinet. And ultimately, Boris Johnson didn't want Dominic Raab to be his foreign secretary anymore, and he isn't. And if he's had to give him an extra title, then uh, so be it. Right, let's, um, let's dive in then. Uh, let's hit the uh, cabinet reshuffle uh, playlist. Who's up first? <laughs> ah, yes, it's what Liz Truss is singing uh, as she arrives as the foreign secretary. Let's focus on Liz. Let's not talk about cheese and uh, and all of her and her Instagramming. Yeah, you know, she was on Instagram long before Rishi Sunak. But what do we know about her foreign policy views? Not a lot. I don't think it is fair to say this is a job she coveted. That's not to say that it's not a great job and one that she'll have been delighted to get. Right, the job of foreign secretary is not a job you can turn down, unless maybe you're the chancellor. But that's about it. It is a great job. But Liz Truss is much more interested, has long been much more interested in economic policy. Uh, I think her dream job really is to be Chancellor. People say she has leadership ambitions, perhaps she does, but her dream job for sure is to be Chancellor. Uh, in terms of foreign policy, I think we can expect her to be a bit more mercantilist. You know, she's, she's got this job because she was seen to have done a very good job as International Trade Secretary. She was a Remainer in 2016, but fully converted to the cause in a way that many of her Remainer compatriots in the Conservative Party uh, were not and are not. Uh, and uh, she seems to have made a success of that job. So I think we can expect to see a bit more focus on fusing diplomatic aims with trade deals. Uh, of course, that's a bit awkward for her successor as International Trade Secretary, Anne-Marie But fundamentally, I think 
uh, this is just a reward for Liz Truss, the great survivor of the cabinet. I mean, she's still quite young, not yet 50, I think, and yet is the longest continuously serving member of this cabinet. The, the, the sort of cheese nonsense was, was getting on like for seven million, years ago. She joined the cabinet ago. in 2014. And the reason, uh, the reason for, for playing uh, to Pal uh, is that uh, it was only earlier this year, I think, she did an interview with the Financial Times when he said this is the time to get tough on China and their behaviour in the global trading system. She's seen as being... Uh, more aggressive towards China than perhaps Dominic Raab and perhaps, pre, you know, certainly if you go back to the David Cameron era of the golden age of China. Yeah, I mean, the, go- the golden era of, of uh, Sino-Anglo relations, that's, that's very much evaporated for sure. I mean, actually, what's quite curious about that is one of the, even before Afghanistan, when there were sort of occasional whispers rather than a constant thud of noise about the prospect that Dominic Raab might get moved, one of the things that people used to say was actually that, Boris Johnson thought Dominic Raab was a bit too tough on China. I mean, if you remember, if you look uh, at what yeah, Dominic Raab's legacy as Foreign Secretary might be, I think it might be a greater legacy than many Foreign Secretaries of recent times, which was his extraordinary generosity to Hong Kongers uh, and uh, basically welcoming any Hong Kongers who wanted to come here after the national security law that China imposed. Um, but Liz Truss will continue very much in that vein, I think. So perhaps the idea that Boris Johnson was a little bit more golden age than that uh, can be put to bed, or perhaps he just didn't know what Liz Truss's views on China were when he decided to give her the job. But also, I mean, this deal he's done overnight with the UK, uh, with uh, the US and Australia, uh, is that's clearly a global, a sort of a more muscular approach to uh, China too. Right, because we need, we've got a lot to get through. Let's hit reshuffle again. <laughs> This is, of course, I want to know what love is by foreigner. So I think we're going to talk about Pretty Patel. Uh, and uh, so she survives as Home Secretary, despite lots of briefing against her. Why do we think that is? And she's now got, she's now got to deliver on all of the two years of endless talking about whether it's, you know, sorting out the immigration system, uh, tackling the labour market shortages and crossing people crossing the English Channel. I think the question of Pretty Patel is a question of balance. Uh, she brings Boris Johnson the political benefit of being very right wing, being rhetorically very right wing and therefore being a signal to the right flank of Boris Johnson's electoral coalition who might go to Reform UK or the Brexit Party or whatever on earth they end up being called at the next election. That this is a government which takes crime very seriously. The other side of that balance is that I think many of her critics would say she hasn't actually delivered on any of that rhetoric. Uh, And so the question of Priti Patel in this reshuffle was, is the uh, political benefit still worth the administrative loss? And Boris Johnson clearly decided that it is. Uh, I think it is not at all a given that that will remain his view right up to the next election. One of the things that people used to say about Priti Patel was she is secure in her post because she's the only woman in a great office of state. And Boris Johnson promised in a talk radio debate during the 2019 Conservative leadership election there would always be a woman in one of his great offices of state. That's Foreign Secretary, Home Secretary and Chancellor. But now Liz Truss is Foreign Secretary. So he can keep that pledge if he decides at some point to sack Priti Patel and replace her with a man. And he's bringing through other women too so there could be someone else uh, in line there. So that's Priti Patel needs to deliver. Let's put... Hit reshuffle again for someone else who needs to deliver. How long do I have to wait for by Sharon Jones? Of course, you know that, Henry. Uh, Sajid Javid, the health secretary. His one job between now and the election is to bring down waiting lists. 
Yeah, it's possibly one of the most crucial jobs in government, perhaps the most crucial job in government. It could decide the outcome of the next election more right. than anything else. And in that sort of nebulous way, where it's not like people are constantly walking the streets saying, oh, that Sajid Javid, I don't think his you know, structural realignment of the NHS is going to do a good job in bringing down waiting lists. But people's experience of the health service uh, will is always a huge determinant of, of election results. And uh, I do think a lot of people are still quite reasonably, some would say, cutting the government a lot of slack because COVID happened and that was a big deal. Uh, but whether they will still cut the government the same amount of slack in 2024, particularly if things feel appreciably worse, I think that's much harder to say. Uh, so that is uh, Sajid Javid there. Someone else who's got to deliver in a new job. Build me up buttercup by the foundations. Partly because uh, this is a Michael Gove, of course, as the news has it said, he has to build. It just also struck me as a sort of song that Michael Gove might enjoy dancing to in the uh, flesh pots of Aberdeen. <laughs> but again, this is a big thing, isn't it? That building houses uh, is a big thing that the government's committed to. 300,000 homes. Uh, people want these houses uh, to be... Well, people want the houses to live in. There's a separate problem of how you actually get them built. Robert Jenrick was clearly seen as not being up to the job. You, you send in someone with a track record of reform. Um, there's a big argument raging in the WhatsApp groups of Westminster today over whether the Times and other august organs got it right by saying Michael Gove had been promoted or whether uh, much less venerable uh, publications uh, were right in saying that he'd been demoted. We are, of course, right. This is a huge job that Michael Gove has been given. Don't be fooled by the fact that Chancellor of the Duchy of Lancaster was ranked for the last couple of years sixth in government pecking order or whatever. Michael Gove has had placed in his hands Boris Johnson's major domestic political priorities. He has been given the task of turning levelling up into an actual agenda. I mean, do you remember that levelling up speech that Boris Johnson gave where everyone watched it and was like... Catch up. Is... <laughs> a woman called Sue. So, yeah, all of that. Didn't make all any of sense that. at all. Right. Well, Michael Gove uh, is, is the closest the government has to a big, deep policy thinker who not only thinks thoughts, but has a track record of delivering them. Uh, and uh, I think that's why Boris Johnson has sent him there. Uh, he has retained as well responsibility uh, for the union, which is obviously the big lurking problem for Boris Johnson. You know, if, if he loses Scotland, then that's his epitaph, never mind anything else he ever does. Uh, and uh, I think, you know, Michael Gove, who, who we first saw walking that up Downing Street to get a cabinet appointment in 2010, 11 years ago, finds himself once again at the heart of a government's agenda. It's and we, must, we just mustn't forget what happened in uh, 2016, the fact that he knifed Boris Johnson and now he's been put in charge of delivering Boris Johnson's big political idea. It's incredible. I, mean, I think we could do three hours and more on Boris Johnson and Michael Gove's complex relationship and still not quite get oh, to the bottom put, of what they think of each other. Putting that on the list, putting that on the list. But we don't have time for that. Let's hit shuffle again. <laughs> you try to work out which one these are. So this is Olive, You're Not Alone. This is very silly. For shh, shh. Only thing on Times Radio is in short. Uh, so we're talking about Oliver Dowden. Uh, was Culture Secretary. He's become a, a co-chairman of the Conservative Party. He's known in Whitehall as Olive, hence why we heard uh, from Olive. But also the question of, is he, is he being sent off on his own? You know, is this a demotion? As, again, some have suggested, or is he being put in charge of winning the next election? 
whichever it is, I don't think it's quite what Oliver Dowden uh, expected when he walked quite early in the pecking order as well into Downing Street yesterday. Uh, someone who was present at his uh, uh, introduction speech to Conservative headquarters last night said to me his words were very upbeat and positive about being there, but he hadn't quite yet told his face. Um, <laughs> uh, look, Oliver Dowden started his career working in Conservative headquarters in Conservative Research Department, where many Conservative luminaries began their career. He was David Cameron's Deputy Chief of Staff for some time. Um, as Culture Secretary has been quite loyal and effective in prosecuting Boris Johnson's agenda, whether you want to call that culture wars or not. Um, so, yes, I think he's clearly been sent there, not because Boris Johnson definitely wants an early election, but I think if you have Oliver Dowden in charge of Conservative infrastructure, the option will always be there. He will know that the Conservative Party, or he will hope that the Conservative Party is battle-ready at any moment. And a great survivor, too. I mean, he, lots of people might not know this, but Oliver Dowden, uh, when he was an official before he became an MP, you know, was a key part of Boy, uh, David Cameron's team. He was in there briefing him on PMQs, you know. Um, uh, and so, again, a sort of slight reinvention that he's now, he's gone from being a close ally of David Cameron to leading Boris Johnson's re-election. Well, as with the Gove question, it shows that seniority is what the Prime Minister wants yeah, to make yeah. of it at any point. I mean, yes, Oliver Down is ostensibly probably going to be the most junior me member of the Cabinet, sitting way away from Boris Johnson at the Cabinet table. But he briefs Boris Johnson for Prime Minister's questions every Wednesday morning. That's a lot of face time with the boss. He also briefed Theresa May on Prime Minister's questions, also briefed um, so a David Cameron on Prime Minister's questions. <laughs> so, you know, the, the common thread of humour, if you want to call it that, to all of them, that, that's Oliver Dowden. Um, but, uh, but yeah, I mean, the man is going to be influential whether his title makes him that or not. Right, we've got quite a few uh, songs to get through. We've already uh, whipped through some of these. Let's hit shuffle again. <laughs> If You Wanna by The Vaccines is, of course, for Nadim Zahawi, the vaccines minister rewarded with education. Well, OK, I'll be quick. It's very simple. Uh, he's done a good job of rolling out the vaccine. He's very smooth on the media. Gavin Williamson had not done a good job of anything and was not smooth on the media. Therefore, Zahawi replaces Gavin Williamson. There we are. Uh, right, let's hit shuffle again. <laughs> This is, of course, the I'm a celebrity, uh, get me out of here oh. theme music. I'm much too high-minded. Which that. could only be for uh, Nadine Doris, uh, who previously, I mean, at one point she was suspended, wasn't she? She was Tory suspended party. from the Tory party for going on I'm a celebrity, get me out of here, flying to Australia without informing the whips. <laughs> <laughs> and now she's in the cabinet as the culture secretary. I have a conspiracy theory about this appointment, Matt. Go on. Uh, Nadine and Nadine, as we discovered in our office yesterday, sound quite similar. And they're both junior ministers of the Department of Health until yesterday. And I wonder if Boris Johnson said, get me Nadine from health. And they said, here she is, Prime Minister. And he went, oh, whoops. <laughs> <laughs> By that point, she was walking up the uh, walking up Downing Street. Exactly. To be clear, I don't actually think that happened. This is a reward for Boris Johnson's, one of his most loyal supporters. Remember there, in 2016, that leadership speech, which turned into a leadership withdrawal. Uh, and she was there looking... Aghast, sitting next to Nadim Zahawi. I mean, basically actually, I think. in tears on the front row right. when Boris Johnson pulled out of the contest. Exactly. And uh, he has remembered that. Uh, she th is very like minded on cultural issues, as people uh, uh, exhuming uh, her old tweets uh, over the last 24 hours have discovered. Uh, and I think she'll be one of the most fascinating members of this new cabinet for sure. Yeah, very much so. How often she's allowed out, I think, will be a very interesting question. Uh, if only to say, it might have been so she can sign some books. Uh, we've already really spoken about it, but it's a good excuse to play this. 
under the sea, under the sea, darling, it's better down where it's wetter. Take it from me. Of course, uh, the sea was actually closed, uh, Henry. So, Dominic Marr, uh going from foreign sector. I actually had somebody on Twitter last night try to convince me it wasn't a demotion. Well, that's wrong. Uh, going Sorry. from uh, <laughs> a point I made to them. So he's gone from foreign secretary to uh, justice secretary, uh, Lord Chancellor, and deputy prime minister. I mean, people have been saying he's the Angela Rayner of the uh, of the reshuffle because. Uh, he refused to budge and then got a very long title. It's only about half the length of Angela Rayner's absurd title. And does at least exist as her shadow... Well, and of course, Angela Rayner's title will have to be changed now because one of her many titles was Shadow First Secretary of State, but that role no longer exists. Whether Keir Starmer will want to bump her up to Shadow Deputy Prime Minister is perhaps the least interesting subplot of this reshuffle, but I am nevertheless following it closely. So has... This is Pop and Nerdsville. Buckle up, everyone. Has the... First Secretary of State title disappeared. It hasn't been rolled it into has. Deputy it Prime has. Minister. It has. Uh, sometimes First Secretary of State exists, sometimes it doesn't. Ditto Deputy Prime Minister. Dominic Raab is actually a very rare thing in recent times, a Conservative Deputy Prime Minister. The first, or the, the first Conservative Deputy Prime Minister since, as everyone is shouting at their radio right now, Michael Heseltine, who got that job for the last two years of John Major's premiership. That was a reward for loyalty, but also to bring Michael Heseltine, the great reformer of that government, as close to the centre of government as possible. I don't think that's quite what's happened here. Uh, what and, also, we have... and also, when, when uh, Tony Blair did it, it was, his, it was John Prescott, who was at various points putting in charge of huge government departments. Uh, he wasn't fobbed off with, like, you've got the road and you can have that title. But it basically, the only thing it really means is it's still going to be Dominic Raab filling in for Boris Johnson at PMQs. Yeah, right. Well, look, I mean, justice is an important department, right? He's not being given an office of deputy prime minister, which is a bit nebulous, you know, go away and think about the constitution or whatever. Um, but it's not the Foreign Office. There is a reason that the meeting between Dominic Raab and Boris Johnson took place in the office where he did the sackings rather than in the office where he did the happy congratulations, you've got the best job of your life meetings. Uh, and uh, Dominic Raab will be smarting, for sure. Foreign Office was his dream job, uh, other than Prime Minister. And uh, it will be really interesting, nevertheless, to see whether he you know, picks himself up, dusts himself off really quickly and comes up with a creative new agenda or whether you know this is the start of a sort of slow steady ministerial decline for someone who was for a while talked of as a potential future prime minister and robert buckland's main uh crime seems to have just been in the department they thought they could get away with moving dominic rob to is that fair yeah i think it probably is i think i think there were maybe some slightly historic now but you know some little internal scuffles over things like the internal markets bill if you remember that controversy um but no broadly robert buckland had been very loyal uh, and quite competent, but this is politics. It's not. It's not. It's not. Uh, th- these appointments were not made by an HR department. You know, giving people points for how they answered core competencies. Uh, I don't know why anyone's. Re- there was a lot of weird surprise in Westminster that you know a cabinet reshuffle involved sacking someone for slightly obscure, hard to discern reasons. I mean, consults not even a history book, a newspaper from the last <laughs> few reshuffles. I mean, this is what happens. And ultimately, if Boris Johnson has decided he wants Dominic Raab out, but he wants to offer him something else, he has to look around the cabinet table and say. What is it that I could reasonably offer him that he could reasonably be expected to take? And Justice, Lord Chancellor, is a better... You know, shuffling him off to Wales probably wasn't going to cut the mustard. Right, and and Dominic Raab is a lawyer, uh, which um, for some time uh, Chris Grayling was not seen as a prerequisite for that job, and that didn't go wonderfully well. Uh, Liz Truss, in fact, also didn't do very well in that job, um, but has rebounded. Um, so, you know, Raab at least speaks some of the same language uh, as the, the, the sort of departmental stakeholders, to use that awful term. Um, uh, so, you know, I think he could make a success of that job. 
Um, but 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 we'll see. But look, I mean, ears of demotion. Clear as day. So Robert Buckland uh, left the cabinet. But let's uh, hit the shuffle for, for another departure. <laughs> Who could this possibly be about? It's the uh, theme tune, of course, of Some Mothers Do Have Them. Uh, so we're going to talk about Gavin Williamson. Uh, we probably don't need to talk about this for long. Uh, he was absolutely dreadful. Uh, he continued to be dreadful, even when it was. It was. You know, it's one of those things where it's so deep into the consciousness that it's sort of even my gran is making jokes about Gavin Williamson. He was someone I didn't bother writing about in my column anymore because what was there left to be said? Uh, he, uh, he uh, and so he went. There is literally nothing left to be said. Very good. Let's hit shuffle again. <laughs> Now, this is niche, but it's very, very good. Who's this, Henry? This is the only one I came up with. This is Robert Jenrick, formerly the housing secretary. The gang, of course, being Robert Jenrick, Oliver Dowden and Rishi Sunak. So, first of the gang to die by Morrissey is by the By Morrissey, song. yes. And so explain the gang and the significance of Robert Jenrick leaving it. Well, so that three uh, endorsed Boris Johnson together in a joint article for The Times, uh, uh, which, which I wrote about, um, which... Um, was a huge moment in the Tory leadership election. Like People act like Boris Johnson becoming leader in 2019 was a, was a foregone conclusion. At that stage, it really wasn't. All his endorsers, pretty much, up to that point, were sort of Brexit headbangers, for want of a better term. Uh, this was not normal. This was, this was three rising stars of sort of roughly the centre of the party saying, Boris is our man. They'd actually interviewed various leadership candidates at Robert Jenrick's Westminster House together. Uh, and they've had very different fortunes since. Robert Jenrick actually got the best job in that first reshuffle. Dowden was Minister for the Cabinet Office. Rishi Sunak was Chief Secretary of the Treasury. Jenrick was Housing Secretary. He was the first millennial cabinet minister, the first ever cabinet minister born in the 80s. And thanks to various scandals and just a simple failure to realise how big Conservative opposition to his planning reforms would be, he's been booted out of the cabinet, the first millennial cabinet minister, before his 40th birthday. Uh, it was really quite brutal. That was not expected. I think people thought Jenrick might get demoted, maybe Chief Secretary to the Treasury, uh, but nobody quite expected his demise to be that swift. But it it, it goes to show a very decisive um, and um, very decisive reshuffle, which which frankly didn't show a lot of regard for for loyalty. And also because he was particularly particularly because he was responsible for those planning reforms, which caused so much anger on the Tory backbenches and, you know, even fed into the talk of why the Tories lost the Cheshire and Amersham by-election. As a result, he he's is he much of a threat on the backbenches? No, I don't think so. I mean I mean I don't think anyone's that much of a threat on the backbenches. Well, what's what, so what about Gavin Williamson? Everyone's saying, you know, he knows where the bodies are buried. Unfortunately he buried most of them. So uh what's how people would say, oh, you can't possibly sack them because they'll cause trouble on the back benches. You have to be a pretty big, big beast. And even then, you know, uh, successive prime ministers have survived people who seemed very powerful at one point because ultimately they're still the prime minister. He has a majority of 80. That is the most salient fact. Uh, people can cause trouble. Rebellions of 2030, they're not ideal, uh, but they can be withstood. Uh, Gavin Williamson, I think he'll cause trouble on the back benches. I mean, this way, he knows where the bodies are buried. I mean, he was last chief whip four years ago, and I'm sure he knows some gossip about MPs of that sort of era, but a lot of them got booted out of the Conservative Party by Boris Johnson and aren't around anymore. Um, 
So no, I don't think people will cause that much trouble on the back bench. Look, Robert Jenrick will bring the experience that comes with having been a cabinet minister. I'm sure he'll do some interesting campaigns, some interesting speeches, but that is not the same thing as wielding the knife to Boris Johnson's premiership uh, in reprisal for having been sacked. Now, remembering that no normal person takes any notice of all these things, although part, I suppose actually because of the last eight, 18 months, some of these people have become celebrities. The Matt Hancock story was much bigger because he'd been on the telly quite so much during the pandemic. So Gavin Williamson will probably get a bit of cut through. What what happens now? Look ahead. I suppose at the party conference, that's an opportunity for some of these new people to lay out their stall. We might get some new policy. Is this the sort of the, the big reboot of Boris Johnson's government? And it, presumably, this is the team which, which is most likely to take him into the next election. Yeah, I think we'll probably get one more reshuffle quite close to the next election. But, but this will broadly be that team, yeah. Um... I don't know. I think this is a reshuffle for the medium term rather than the short term. I don't think it's that Liz Truss is going to give a better conference speech than Dominic Raab. No one cares what the Conservative Foreign Secretary says at the Conservative Party conference, really. Um, I think it is a team that Boris Johnson thinks over the next couple of years will give him something that he can go into 2024 saying, because that's the question that really concerns Conservative MPs. 2019, the message was clear. Get Brexit done. What are the three words for 2024? That is what Boris Johnson needs to work out over the next few years. And I think the thrust of this reshuffle has been getting people into positions where he thinks he might be, might have more strings to his bow uh, with which he can then say, actually, this is what I offer. This is what you should ask me to, you know, this is what you should give me another five years to do more. I told you I'd do this. I've done this. Now I'm telling you I'll do this and you know that I'm going to do it. And that's, that's, there's, you know. Because the Tories have been in government for a hell of a long time by the time of the next election, 14 years. So he needs, he needs to be able to show something for it. Lovely stuff. Well, that was, that was, I feel like we've gone through a full record collection there, Henry. DJ Henry Zeffman uh, talking to uh, Boris Johnson hitting shuffle on the cabinet playlist. This episode of Politics Without the Boring Bits is brought to you by Luton Rising, owners of London Luton Airport, the UK's most socially impactful airport. Find out more at lutonrising.org.uk. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. 